Okay, well, hi everyone. Um, welcome. We're we're very excited to see so many people that are interested in this in this topic. Really, that is just so dear to us. Um, uh, I'm the newcomers and youth pastor at Blue Ocean Faith, Blue Ocean Church, Ann Arbor, um, and hosting the the class, or at least the intro part of the class. Um, so on the panel, and let me make sure that you're seeing gallery view. Um, we have Susan Schaefer, and she's been the, the children's ministry pastor at, at Blue Ocean for a while now. Um, and we have uh, Vanessa Lyons, who's one of our translocal leaders, and um, she's just been such a huge ally and, and, and um, advocate for, for this issue. Um, we have Diane Sanda, and she has also been the children's ministry pastor at Blue Ocean and also is doing the um, administrative work now as well. So, and then Ken Wilson is the um, co-pastor along with Emily Swan, who's not here, um, but Ken is going to be presenting today and um, really helping us to dive into this topic. So um, a few quick details. Um, you're, uh, we're, we're doing, it's a Zoom webinar. So you're coming in as an attendee and that means that you can see and hear the panelists, but we can't see and hear you. We can see that you're on and we can see anything you write in the chat. So please write to everyone so that all people, uh, attendees and panelists can see what you have to say. And we like having the conversation roll like that. It's great. We're also gonna use the Q&A function. So if you have like a more um, a, a question with some substance, um, feel free to put that in the Q&A and the panelists will uh, sort through those questions and at the end we'll answer some of those questions that you might have as well. Um, so let's see. Okay, so um, after I'm done orienting us, um, Vanessa Lyons is going to briefly share her story as a parent ally. And then Ken will present, we're hoping about 45 minutes or so, um, and then we'll have a Q&A and a closing song. So we're gonna try to go for uh, an hour and 15, maybe an hour and a half. We'll, we'll do our best to be conscientious of time. Um, so I, I love the vibrant chat and it's so great to see people from everywhere. We have people from many different states and countries other than the US. Um, we have many people here who uh, want to be religious allies for their LGBTQIA plus family and friends. Um, we have several clergy who are interested in learning and affirming theology rooted in scripture. And it's just so important to us. And um, we're just so, and then also we're very, very and deeply honored to have uh, LGBTQIA Christians on here. Uh, many who have been affected by the traditional teachings and are interested in affirming theology um, because we have LGBTQ plus attendees, um, this is not the place to uh, advance or kind of argue the traditional teaching. We think that that's been given sufficient airtime already and really just want to create a safe place for people as we're exploring these topics. Um, we also want to begin by acknowledging an obvious fact. Um, much of the work that's being done right now in developing LGBTQ affirming theology is being done by LGBTQ Christians. Um, and none of this would be possible without the brave witness of LGBTQ people. So organizations led by um, LGBTQIA leaders, including the Reformation Project 
and Q Fellowship um, are doing some amazing work. Um, these first four sessions are uh, at least an attempt to make like a supportive contribution to their work um, by gathering up the work of pastor or scholar allies who have um, forged their affirming theologies in the fires, um, the fires of evangelicalism, really. So we want to begin by acknowledging that, um, that there are some limits to our frame of reference. And while the speakers uh, in the first four sessions are um, cisgendered or straight allies, um, I am a cisgendered straight woman. And um, we just wanted to say that uh, we all agree that uh, any LGBTQ affirming theology has to pass the muster of LGBTQ Christians themselves. So we just encourage you to use this class as like a springboard into an LGBTQ affirming theology and to engage with the work that's already being done by so many LGBTQ people, and that's surely gonna expand um, in the coming years. We also wanna mention that for some of our LGBTQ attendees, um, engaging the scriptures, the scriptural issues um, that we're gonna be addressing can be psychologically or spiritually challenging. Um, even just hearing some of these texts um, that have been previously used in harmful ways can be painful. So we just encourage you to practice good self-care, push that mute button on your computer, um, engage as much or as little as is helpful. Um, we are recording this session and um, for the first session, audio and video recordings will be available um, after we're finished. Um, we're going to send an email with a direct link to the Blue Ocean website. It's a2blue.org. Um, as soon as it's ready, probably later this week, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and finally, Vanessa Lyons and Steve Gray are just excellent allies from Blue Ocean Church, and they're available for email interaction throughout the class. So you can private message them on um, the chat. Vanessa's here, and we'll put their email addresses. Um, Ken is also available for any clergy to uh, email and, and if they want to talk more about this. So one last thing, um, our church, Blue Ocean Ann Arbor, is led by Emily Swan. Uh, Emily's married to Rachel, and she's also the author of Solus Jesus, A Theology of Resistance. About a third of our congregants at Blue Ocean Church are uh, part of the LGBTQIA community. And if you are in an area where there aren't good affirming church options, um, you can always join us for our virtual services every Sunday. We're always on Zoom, even if we do a Zoom hybrid in-person um, service. Zoom is always available to be uh, integrated into the service. So Ken is our Zoom pastor and we have a team of translocal leaders from around the country and Canada. So if you want the Zoom invites to our Sunday services, please just email um, diane at a2blue.org and we can put that in the chat as well. So let's get started. Let's hear from um, Vanessa Lyons, who's a member of Blue Ocean and a leader in the Reformation Project. Take it away, Vanessa, thanks. So I just wanna welcome everybody. It's great that so many people are interested in this. This is a, a big passion of mine. Uh, I actually started on this process many years ago, probably about 12, 15 years ago. My background is Southern Baptist. And we're talking, I was Sunday school teacher, you know, when the doors were open, my kids were there, church camp, everything fully immersed in Southern Baptist. And 
one Sunday night, we had a guest speaker come to talk about basically conversion therapy. And at that point, God really placed a burden on my heart saying, okay, this, this is a population that you really have a, a desire to help. And I'll be honest at the time, because of my upbringing and my teaching, it was from the viewpoint of, I need to convert them. And so I'm the type of person that when I start on something, I want to learn more about it. So of course I was reading the non-affirming text that supported my views, but I wanted to be prepared for those arguments against my views. So I started reading some affirming texts that I didn't necessarily agree with. And through that process, I began to change and my views started adjusting. And after a lot of studying and prayer and meditation, I came to the realization that I, that my beliefs might not be accurate. So at that point, I transitioned into more of a affirming, I disagree with my church on this stance, different in theological views, but I could still be active in my church because there's no doctrine that I agree with 100%. And so I continued with my activity in the church and I would use it. I would use opportunities to speak up and say, hey, let's do more ministry to this group. And I became involved with free mom hugs and trying to show God's love to the LGBTQ community. Uh, I'm very thankful for that experience because it helped prepare me for several years later when my daughter came out as lesbian. Now, had I not had that experience, I would not have been able to respond in a positive way, but I was able to support her with love. But what really struck me with that process is despite the fact she was raised in an affirming household, you know, when before she came out, I supported her uh, creating a GSA group at her high school. She had friends who were LGBTQ, 100% supportive of them. Despite the fact she was getting that at home, what she internalized was what was taught in the church. And I began to see this wasn't just difference in theological opinions. This wasn't, you know, immersion versus sprinkle for baptism type argument. This, was, this bad theology was actually causing harm. And that's when I became to get where, where I began to get more active because we have the research shows that Christian LGBTQ attempt suicide more often than non-Christian LGBTQ. That rate goes up the more strongly they are aligned with their faith. Additionally, uh, the risk for suicide increases after Christian counseling as opposed to secular counseling. So this isn't just a, I disagree with the church. This is actual bad theology that's causing significant harm to LGBTQ in the form of mental health. But additionally, it reinforces, promotes, and almost even requires prejudice and active harm against those in the community. And so that's why I began to get active in this process. And uh, I'm an ambassador for the Reformation Project. And I work with, you know, I started looking for a, an affirming church. And so that's what started me. You know, I started on the complete opposite side. I started on the pro-conversion therapy. And through learning and praying and meditation I began to realize the error of my ways and I'm not, I, I'm, I have no problem admitting I was wrong. And so that was my process to get where I am. And I'm so thankful I did because I'm able to support my daughter in the way that I should as a parent.
And so I didn't start this process because I had a gay child. I, God put me there because he knew I was going to have one one day. So I'm very thankful for that. And like Caroline said, if any of you, else, you know, I primarily work a lot with parent allies, but if anybody is struggling and wants more information, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm very happy to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, Vanessa. That was great. Um, all right, we're ready to dig, dig into our topic today. And our topic is First Do No Harm, Foundation for an LGBTQ Affirming Theology. You are encouraged to chatter away in the chat if you like. That I think helps people uh, stay focused. So um, not a problem for me. So by 2005, I noticed it like a mild stomach bug, a queasy feeling that my evangelical views on LGBTQ were wrong. Most pastors, even privately affirming ones, do not hear candid accounts of the suffering of gender and sexual minorities in their congregations. They don't hear from the kids not yet out who internalize the stigma of a church culture that reserves affirmation either by conviction or by fear or timidity. I had to study the scripture myself in depth to do anything about it because I was a pastor. But pastors are practitioners, not scholars. They're occupied with capital campaigns, supervising staff, putting out fires. There's actually little time for study, especially in-depth study, especially if the study is going to rock the boat. Still, I couldn't shake it until it doubled me over. These policies are harmful. They're shameful, consigning LGBTQ people to lifelong religiously imposed celibacy. If true, oh God, you know, in, enforcing these policies would be a violation of my pastoral vow. So that's the, that's the angst that got me on this journey. Now, most pastors rely on trusted authorities within their religious comfort zone. The study required to swim against that current is daunting. We learn as pastors that every text derives its meaning from its linguistic, cultural, historical context. Plucking texts out of context and applying them to concerns the writers were not addressing is interpretive malpractice. And, but in this issue, key questions about the context are, are just contested up and down the line. So how daunting is this kind of study for many pastors? Think telling your grandma who has never owned a laptop or smartphone to figure out how to get on Zoom. Like, okay, Google it, grandma, as if that's gonna help. Few pastors put in the effort required and only after their conscience is screaming at them. Years ago, the evidence for the harm was, was greatly hidden, but now it's obvious. Exodus International, the ex-gay ministry, disbanded in 2013 because they recognized the harm. Studies show that an LGBTQ child raised in a non-affirming church incurs several mental health risks as a result, even though for straight cisgendered people, church is a mental health benefit. But we only need to hear our LGBTQ loved ones tell of the psychological torture caused by church teachings 
Now, this is a rising tide of witness. However, it's easy to buffer oneself from their witness if the social cost is high. So allies in the re religious realm need to grow some ovaries. We, we, we hope to help you not by avoiding scripture, but by diving into it. Today, we're dealing with the one thing we all share, which is some awareness of harm. You're here because you know in your gut the traditional reading is harmful to yourself or your loved ones. Paying attention to the problem of harm is not a soft-hearted intuition to be balanced by the clear teaching of Scripture, as if to say, on the one hand, love, on the other hand, Scripture. Scripture itself urges us to be alert to this problem of harm. In this class, we're not dumbing it down because there's just too much at stake, and you are more highly motivated than most pastors are if you're in this class. You'll have to be patient with the learning process as we take one piece at a time. You don't have to master all the details. The notes and recordings will be available for re review. But once you get all the pieces over the coming months, things will really fall into place for you. You will have strength and conviction, and more importantly, I think, new confidence. I promise. So let's go with today's uh, piece, first piece. First, do no harm, the foundation of an affirming theology. Most Christians are only aware of a few New Testament proof texts trotted out by mostly liberal Christians to address the problem of harm. Some version of love your neighbor as yourself. This, of course, is the love that requires empathy and attention to harm. This verse is cited about eight times in different versions in the New Testament. Often, though, it's a key principle for interpreting Scripture. Like, how so? Well, Jesus summarizes uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is his exposition of biblical ethics, saying, In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, this is the law and the prophets. And of course, the law and the prophets was the Bible of Jesus. Paul echoes this in Galatians 5. The entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. James echoes this in James 2 verse 8. And just in case we needed reminding that harming people is not loving them, Paul in Romans adds, Love doesn't harm the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Jesus' followers experienced being harmed by those who were misusing Scripture against them. Paul himself did this before his revelation on the road to Damascus. So they were especially attuned to the problem of harm, and they addressed it as it came to interpreting Scripture. So these are not isolated verses, but the tip of an iceberg. Beneath the surface of the New Testament is what? The Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. That's the only Bible that Jesus and the New Testament writers had. And these are the writings that undergird a robust do-no-harm ethic. They're like the mass below the tip of the iceberg. You know, I've got my copy of the Hebrew Bible here, and it's got three sections, the first five books, the Law of Moses, the middle section called the Writings, 
and then this section here, the Proverbs. Okay, so it's a compendium of writings. If you add the New Testament in the mix, it's about this size. So you can see how important the mass below the tip of the iceberg is when you look at the Bible in that way. You know, at the height of the Cold War, I think it was 1960, when Nikita Khrushchev uh, pounded a shoe at the UN, some of the older ones remember that, he said something in Russian that was translated on the spot as, we will bury you. I mean, it sounded like a threat of nuclear attack. But the UN translator raised in London missed the nuance of Khrushchev's words. It was an idiom that meant, we will outlast you. Not we will bury you, we will outlast you. Many things get lost or mangled in the art of translating, interpreting, and especially teaching scripture. Why? Because these are ancient Jewish writings, including the New Testament. And non-Jewish pastors pay too little attention to the Hebrew Bible, the Bible of Jesus and Paul. Even the Christian scholars of the only of the Old Testament only know the Hebrew scriptures as a second language, not a native tongue. Before we dive in, remember what uh, evangelical seminaries teach, but pastors rarely stress, scripture does not interpret itself. It's a collection of written documents. All written documents require a reader who interprets what is written. Take the sayings of Jesus written in the Gospels. We know tone of voice greatly affects meaning. Every married couple knows that. Everyone with a roommate knows that. With written words, we can only guess at tone of voice. So all reading is an act of interpretation. Jesus knew this. When asked what's needed to inherit eternal life, he answered, what has been written, how do you read it? We read our Bibles through lenses of our culture, our religious group, our experience, our knowledge, and our ignorance. We need the lens of first importance offered by Scripture itself first, do no harm. Now, in what I'm to, about to share, I want to acknowledge my debt to a few scholars. Jacob Milgram, Richard Friedman, Shauna Delansky, and Mary Douglas, and then um, a few friends of mine that have been conversation partners in this, Don Shiver, uh, pastor in Toledo, David Gushy, who will be speaking uh, next time, and Caroline Kittle, who you've met. So first of all, harming people in this life is the primary ethical concern of Scripture, starting with Genesis. So the fruit of disconnection from the divine presence is evidence in the murder of Abel, followed by the spread of violence among Cain's descendants. By Genesis chapter 6, the earth is filled with violence, and crucially, God is portrayed as affected by this harm against humans, other creatures, the creation. This harm, it is written in Genesis 6-6, fills God's heart with pain. Direct quote. When we suffer, God suffers. Genesis is especially concerned, though, with family members ganging up on innocent victims. We call it scapegoating. It happens to Hagar, to, to Abel, to Ishmael, and it's the drama of the longest narr narrative in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph, an innocent victim ganged up on by his brothers. Concern for harm in this life 
intensifies in Exodus, where the Hebrews suffer crushing harm, vividly depicted at the hands of their Egyptian overlords. Yahweh is introduced as the God who is affected by the cries of afflicted people. God's deliverance is deliverance from a situation of harm to one of safety called Shalom. Exodus ends with the construction of a tabernacle in which the divine presence dwells and humans can learn to approach God as a nearby neighbor. So the do no harm ethic is expanded in Leviticus. This is a book much more important than we think. Many resolutions to read through the Bible run aground on the third book in the Bible, Leviticus. There we find priestly instructions for temple worship, sacrifices, kosher food laws, purity rules, such foreign ways of thinking for modern people. But the ancient Near East, the region around um, the land of Israel, all, they all had priests, temples, food laws, and purity codes. These were not invented by Israel. Israel adopted them for their purposes, often radically reforming them in the direction of do no harm. So yes, our eyes glaze over when we encounter these rituals, but rituals always convey an ethic. Our modern rituals do. Baseball is a set of rituals that conveys an ethic, like unbiased umpires make the calls, not players. Three strikes you're out is an ethic. Uh, first time someone does you wrong, bygones. Second time, warning lights. Third time, they're out. Leviticus conveys an ethic through its rituals, a do-no-harm ethic. Irony alert. Leviticus also contains the only two verses in the Old Testament that address same-gender sex. The only other writer who does so is Paul. So when we cover Paul on this question, this background is important because Paul was informed by Leviticus. Before we briefly cover the Leviticus clobber verses, let's consider the underlying harm alleviation ethic, though, that is embedded in the rituals of Leviticus. This may be more fun than you think, he said, hopefully. First, the book of Leviticus explicitly frames its instructions as life-giving, not harmful. Since God's instructions, properly understood, are intended as a blessing in this life, that's the focus, harmful effects in this life indicate improper understanding of any instruction. Did you know the ancient sages of Israel taught, and I'm quoting here directly from the Talmud, all the laws of Torah, except idolatry, incest, and bloodshed, are set aside if their observance will endanger the preservation of human life. Thus, when harm is noticed as an outcome of observing any divine instruction, the continued observance must be suspended. This is a powerful principle for approaching interpretation of texts that result in evident harm to LGBTQ people today. Second, Compared to the temple rituals of the surrounding nations, the temple rituals focus on human agency to cause harm. So in the nearby nations, sacrifices and incantations are offered to protect humans from the harmful effects of the demonic realm. That's the real concern. Leviticus pays no attention to the demonic realm. Humans are the agents of harm in Leviticus. 
This is the basis for modern ethics. So Paul actually has little to say about demons as well. He too is focused on human agency. Third, uh, how Leviticus has a, has a um, do no harm ethic. The kosher food laws of Leviticus, they seem so like bizarre, arcane to us, but they severely limit harm caused by the human appetite for food. Only three species of quadrupeds, cattle, sheep, and goat, are permitted for food, plus a few species of fowl. Deuteronomy later adds a short list of wild quadrupeds allowed for hunting, but in Genesis it's plant food only at first. Leviticus then imposes this severe limitation on meat eating. Actually, the earliest tradition says that only uh, animals brought to the temple for sacrifice can provide food for the Israelite families. So. And the animal couldn't be clubbed, couldn't be strangled, couldn't be drowned. It had to be slaughtered painlessly in their instructions in Leviticus for how to do this. The blood of any creature is forbidden as a food source because the life is in the blood. This ethic far exceeds our modern protections of animal life. Fourth, the temple sacrifices of Leviticus, contrary to popular belief, convey a kinder and gentler approach to sin than many Christians promote. So temple sacrifices were not about protecting humans from God's wrath by slaughtering an animal to assuage God's wrath against sin. That was, that was a pagan idea, one that reappears in the evangelical doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That's the theory that God's wrath at all humans for any sin requires the bloody sacrifice of Jesus. In Hebrew, sacrifice is derived from the verb come near. There were five categories of sacrifice. They're listed in the first, in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Some involved grain and oil, not animals. Sacrifices could express thanksgiving, fellowship with God, fulfillment of a vow, uh, those dealing with sin focused on inadvertent sins. So this teaches that most of our misdeeds are inadvertent, unintentional, done in ignorance. Sacrifice for intentional sin happened once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and covered the intentional sins of the whole community. So this is the opposite of ginning up guilt and shame over sin. Most of our wrongs are inadvertent. We don't know what we're doing. We don't have to gin up feelings of guilt and shame. We need to do better once we know better. See how different this ethic is from the hyper-focused, alarmist, neurotic occupation with sin in much of modern Christianity. We don't have time for the purity laws of Leviticus, darn you're saying, except to say they too are a radical reform of the purity codes of the surrounding nations. The preeminent Jewish scholar of Leviticus, Jacob Milgram, demonstrates this. Most purity rules had to do with temple worship and nothing to do with sin. A person contracted impurity in the natural course of living by contact with corpses, genital discharges, a couple of other things. It was easily resolved by waiting till nightfall or a week or two or having a ritual bath. This is a much kinder, gentler approach than the surrounding nation's approach to impurity. 
the evangelical application of purity language to everything but sex between a man and his one wife goes way beyond Leviticus, but this is a topic in its own right. Back to our theme. Finally, anti, the anti-harm ethic of Leviticus occurs in its pinnacle chapter, chapter 19, which is right between chapter 18 and 20, where our clobber verses are located. Chapter 19 is where you will find, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus and Paul and James were quoting, which applied not only to Israel, but to the foreigners living in the land of Israel. Uh, it's fleshed out in, in uh, uh, chapter 19 as well. Things like, don't hate your neighbor in your heart. Don't take revenge or nurse a grudge. Don't cheat in business. Treat immigrants and the handicapped well. Or this one, which applies to our advocacy for LGBTQ people. You shall not stand aloof over the blood of your fellow. In other words, don't stand by while others are being harmed. So love your neighbor as yourself is the love that requires empathy and attentiveness to harm, both to ourselves and to others. Jacob Milgram says, uh, says of this verse, this arguably is the ethical summit, not only in this chapter, but in all of scripture. So Jesus, Paul, and James are agreeing with the Jewish scholar Milgram because they too were informed by the ethic enacted in the Leviticus rituals. And like baseball rituals have primed Americans to write three strikes you're out laws, the ancient rituals of Israel sensitized Israel to the problem of harm in the religious sphere. Okay, now we're gonna take a five minute discursus or rabbit trail to cover those two clobber verses that I mentioned earlier, the only ones in the entire Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Then we'll go back to our do no harm tour and finish it up quickly. So chapters 18 and 20 cover prohibited sexual relations of, of a few different kinds. Leviticus 20 repeats much of Le Leviticus 18, but with a slightly different focus. So the main focus is various forms of what we would call incest. The male head of household can't have sex with certain relatives living in his extended family compound. Oddly, daughters are not included in the list. So this illustrates that ancient law codes are not precise they're often opaque. They're not comprehensive. Sex with a menstruating woman is prohibited. Reason is not given, as is having sex with a, another man's wife. This is only mentioned in Leviticus 20, not chapter 18. The only other sexual prohibition is Leviticus 18.22, a first clobber text, and then it's mirror um, Leviticus 20.13. These say, a man shall not lay with a man as the layings of a woman. That's closest to the, uh, to the Hebrew. No re reason is given for this prohibition. The Hebrew wording is, is narrow. The phrase is used only to apply to intercourse. So in this case, anal intercourse. Of course, studies show that significant percentage of gay couples who are men do not engage in anal sex for a variety of reasons. 
When the reason for a prohibition isn't given in scripture, we look to the context for clues. Uh, the reason gives us a real sense of the rule in a way that uh, a rule that's offered without any reason doesn't. So Leviticus in 18 and 20, um, both of the, these chapters open with warnings against the ways of surrounding nations, especially uh, the idol worship of the surrounding nations. The source of all sin in Jewish thinking is idolatry. So it's possible the offense of anal intercourse had to do with its connection to pagan worship practices in the surrounding nations. Uh, for example, Deuteronomy includes a ban on male shrine prostitutes. Remember, men did the temple worship in the ancient Near, Near East. So that's quite possible. There may be other pagan worship practices that we don't know of that involve anal sex. Uh, Roman men practice anal sex with male temple prostitutes in temples dedicated to Zeus. Zeus mythically was understood to have uh, uh, dominated phallically his young male consort Ganymede. That was all part of the Roman myth that was being replayed in the temple rituals in, in uh, ancient Rome. So in the ancient Near East in general, penetrating another male was a form of domination that shamed the male who was penetrated, in which case it's not about loving intimacy, but about domination and violence. So it's extremely unlikely that homosexuality per se was in view in Leviticus 18 and 20. It wasn't until I think 1859 that a word was coined to refer to those with a primary sexual attraction to members of the same gender, just as marriage between equals was unknown until later times. You know, there's an even more compelling piece of evidence that homosexuality per se, per se is not being addressed in this verse. Lesbian sex isn't prohibited here, where it would be expected if same-gender sex per se were the concern addressed by the writer. Scripture can't address all possible concerns. So the next, this next part is R-rated, so cover your ears, kids. Jewish scholars uh, Friedman and Delansky say polygamy was common in ancient Israel. There was no law against a man having several wives, even concubines, as Solomon and David did. Uh, these scholars point out that in polygamy, group sex often happens. So a man has sexual contact with more than one wife at the same time in a group setting. In such a setting, these rather conservative Jewish scholars uh, acknowledge that it's likely the wives, while not attended to by the one male in the room, may have fooled around with each other. So the ancients were not ignorant of sexual contact between females. And this was a traditional society concerned, as many are, to control female sexuality especially. So the absence of a prohibition on lesbian sex is all the more telling. A female sexual practice is forbidden in the verse following Leviticus 18.22, where you would expect lesbian sex to be prohibited if homosexuality were the concern. But this verse prohibits female bestiality, which is also prohibited for men in Leviticus 20. Friedman and Delansky provide another compelling reason not to apply this to gay people today, 
remember, marriage bans affect trans people too, since the church disputes their gender. So it's a, it's a weird kind of illogic. Leviticus 18.22 and 2013 uh, prohibit a man laying with a man as the layings of a woman, adding, it is toeva. That's the Hebrew word, toeva. Older Bibles translate toeva as abomination. You've no doubt heard this word. But Hebrew scholars agree this is a poor translation since abomination in English means the worst conceivable sin against God. A better translation is offensive. It is offensive. Now, Friedman and Delansky demonstrate that toeva offensive is not used as a moral absolute in the Bible. What is considered toeva offensive is different in different times and cultures within the Bible itself. So Moses tells Pharaoh the Hebrews need to leave Egypt to worship God because it would be toeva for them to do so in Egypt, offensive. Joseph says shepherds are toeva, offensive to Egyptians. The founders of Israel do things like marry a half-sister, which is considered toeva, offensive in Leviticus, but not in their time. We would find a 30-year-old man marrying a 13-year-old girl offensive. It was not in the time of the New Testament. So here's the kicker, though. Friedman and Delansky say, the Bible, I'm quoting directly, the Bible specifically identifies laws about things that are divine offenses, that is, offenses against God. Toeva Yahweh is the phrase, but that phrase is not used in Leviticus 18.22 or 20.13. So there was a phrase that meant offensive to God. It's not used in Leviticus 18.22 or 20.13. These verses do not say anal sex is offensive to God. The traditional certainty is hanging by a very thin thread indeed. This is grossly insufficient justification to apply these verses to the gay people we know and love today in view of the evident harm we know this causes. In other, in other words, your gut feeling, your observation, your awareness of the harm these interpretations cause LGBTQ people, harm vividly experienced if you are a gender or sexual minority, is buttressed by scripture itself. Let's finish our quick tour on this theme. On to the wisdom writings. We're almost done, don't worry. In Psalms, the major threat addressed in the Psalms is an innocent victim surrounded by a mob, either Israel itself surrounded by the nations or often an individual surrounded by a mob. For example, they have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. That's from Psalm 109. Or, they have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover, Psalm 17. Many other Psalms like this. 
Psalms are the best love portions of scripture, and many concern innocent victims thought to be guilty, surrounded by a hostile mob, often composed of former friends, not foreign foes. This is what so many LGBT people experience in many churches. So in 2014, my colleague Emily fell in love with Rachel. My book had been published uh, earlier that year. Uh, my denomination, Vineyard USA, the officials, when they heard this, they mounted a campaign against her, ignoring any kind of due process. They effectively outed her when her relationship was just starting. Emily had a choice, either get out of Dodge or tell her story to our church. She told her story to, in over two services, a thousand congregants who gave her a standing ovation. But behind the scenes, a mob formed in collusion with the denominational authorities, some powerful donors of the church, a vocal minority who opposed gay marriage in our church at that time, leaders who went along, though they claimed to support Emily. She was forced out by this whole process, and I went with her to found Blue Ocean Church Ann Arbor. Mobs are formed by a few ringleaders launching accusations enabled by a large group of silent bystanders who violate Leviticus 19.16. You shall not stand aloof from the blood of your fellow. So this theme in Psalms is powerfully reinforced in Job, another innocent victim whose closest friends turn on him and gaslight him with God talk as if his sins brought on his misfortune. So Psalms and Job model the right of howling protest, a right of our LGBTQ loved ones. Nora Heal uh, Hurston, a really great African-American memoirist wrote, if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Of course, the prophets are attuned to the harm done to the powerful by the uh, by the uh, done to the vulnerable by the powerful major theme in the writings of the prophets that Jesus, of course, picks up as a prophet. It's the overriding ethical concern of the prophets and Jesus. So Ezekiel, for example, several chapters devoted to the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, harming the people they are meant to care for. God himself, who is affected by the harm in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel has God say, I myself will come down and shepherd my people and save them from these shepherds who harm them for personal gain. So, conclusion. There is a theme woven throughout the Bible, missed by our bias against writings we don't understand that are using foreign to us concepts that we misrepresent. This theme is reinforced, reinforcing the obvious. Hurting people is not okay, no matter how many texts you marshal in your defense of cruelty. We have the spirit in us, we are bearers of the divine image. We don't need the Bible to tell us this. We don't need the Bible to tell us to brush our teeth or to warn against driving without a seatbelt or to wear our sunscreen. 
but because the ancient world was filled with people harming each other in the name of their God, this is an important part of the teaching of Israel passed on to us. Messiah's sufferings, depicted when we gather at the communion table um, week after week, reminds us his rising from the dead vindicates everyone scapegoated over all the sad history of the world, and his face shines on all those who join their suffering to his because he has joined his suffering to ours. This particular form of suffering caused by humans in God's name, an egregious violation of God's holy name. So perhaps there was a time when the harm done to LGBTQ people by these teaching was hidden to us, but it is hidden no longer. Now that we know better, we must do better. This idea that love has to be balanced with scripture is a slander of scripture because scripture urges us to listen to our hearts telling us what we already know, what you already know. You know, if, if we have a, if you have a Bible handy, I have a suggestion um, as we close. Let me take some time to, to hold a Bible in your hands and, and maybe to bring it to your heart. If, if it's triggering because this book has been used against you, well, just skip this part, please. But if you're, if you're thinking of doing that or you're doing that, focus your attention on the concerns that your heart has been whispering to you this sense of distress in your heart, the distress you feel over the suffering of LGBTQ people. By the time you come to a class like this, you've been feeling it for a long time and it is strong. Attend to what your heart knows. And then as you hold that Bible to your heart, understand that you do not have to balance your awareness of harm what the, with what this book has to say. Consider instead that this book contains an ethic running through it, one that resonates with your heart and amplifies what your heart has been telling you for a long time. You know, because this has been a little bit intense, I'd like to have us end with a prayer. I wonder if um, we could put the Sarum prayer there in the, in the chat. Make sure it's up there. This is a prayer that we use um, every week to open our ser uh, service at Blue Ocean. It's a, it's a lovely prayer. It comes from the 15th century. Um, and it's a prayer that very much focuses on God in our bodies. And, and those who have been shamed about gender or sexuality issues um, often end up uh, absorbing kind of a conflicted relationship with one's body. In fact, that's just something that all, all people in American society seem to have, and especially within the church, unfortunately. And this prayer, I think, is a great antidote to that. So I'm going to pray it, and, and you can um, kind of pray it with me together if you'd like. God be in my head and in my understanding. God be in my eyes and in my looking. God be in my mouth and in my speaking. God be in my heart and in my thinking. 
God be at my end and at my departing. So in the days ahead, let us strengthen our hearts with better heart thinking. Amen. I'm done. Diane and uh, Susan, you want to take it away with questions? Yes, we, we um, have a time now. If you have questions, um, we have the chat box, um, but we also have this function, um, the Q&A. Um, so if you if you go down to the bottom of your screen, you, you might be able to see the Q&A as an option for communicating, and that will help us to, to get questions um, seen. And then you can also like questions that other people have also already said on there. Um, so if you have a question and you notice that someone else has already um, said a question that is kind of in the same spirit as your question, then you could just like their question um, and we can try to get to as many questions as possible. Um, so feel free to to use the chat or the Q&A. We, we have lots of eyes on both. Um, and we uh, do have a, a couple of questions. Um, one of the questions came in. Um, we had a question that from Karen that said, how do you see the Old Testament commands of God to slaughter the Canaanites and surrounding peoples as fitting with this do no harm ethic? Yeah, so I think that's so, a really, um, yeah, that's important. a really important thing. I'm so glad someone brought that up because I, I didn't have time to deal with it, but it's an obvious thing that, um, in certain portions of scripture, judges, especially numbers has some of this, um, as, especially as the, you know, Hebrew slaves are in the wilderness and they're entering the promised land. They're given uh, commands to like basically slaughter the inhabitants of the land. Um, and I think this is something that um, a couple of things. Number one, uh, there's actually no evidence that anything like this happened. There's no archaeological evidence that this was ever acted on. Of course, too, um, we are never commanded to do this. Um, um, but I think more importantly, it, it talks to the, the nature of Scripture itself. But the Jewish view of Scripture is that Scripture is written like with many voices, many different perspectives. And part of faithfully engaging in Scripture is to like get involved in the conversation and make discernments about which voices have priority. And so I think, I think this do no harm ethic is a voice that helps us to engage portions of scripture like that helps us to understand well wait a minute you know this is not something for me to adopt uh and i've got a, i've got a reason not uh to adopt it but i think that question is probably the the most um chilling troubling part of of anything that is in the bible um, and I, I actually don't know any like great, oh, that makes sense of the whole thing. I mean, there are many things that people say, you know, like, well, these are, these are texts written by an oppressed, harassed, persecuted people, and they may have been imagining, you know, or wishing for like a God who would kind of, you know, seek vengeance against their enemies. And, and these texts are coming out of that hurt possible um but still it's very troubling that they're there and it's good for us faithfully reading scripture to notice those texts and to be distressed by them my non-answer answer, answer. Mm -hmm. mark um, asks uh if romans chapter one will be discussed in the future 
Yes, we've got um, we've got three more sessions lined up. David Gushy, um, Megan DeFranza, and uh, Kathy Baldock. And I'm going to wait to see what they cover because I want them to cover like what they want to cover. And then um, we're going to have uh, some subsequent sessions, probably at least two more sessions. But we will for, for sure make sure that in the class we cover Romans chapter one. Um, Kathy Baldock for sure is going to uh, cover 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which is a, a key text on this. But so Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 are the key texts in the New Testament. And of course, Paul was informed by Leviticus because he was a Pharisee. And the, Leviticus was actually the most important uh, book of the Bible to the Pharisees. So there's no doubt that understanding Leviticus aright is key to understanding and interpreting Paul aright. But we're, we'll definitely get to Romans 1. Along that line, we were also, um, there was a question about a book list um, of some, you know, if there's other resources that we could have. Um, I know some people have been putting some, some things in the chat of people that they have found useful to read. Um, so if you are someone who has some, you know, a book about this that has been helpful, that, that is something you could do in the chat. But um, I wasn't sure, Ken, if we had a resource page or if we could, you know, get that out by email at the end of the sessions for people who want to continue this work further. Um, yeah, for sure. We can, um, we'll, we'll put that in, a, in an email, some recommended books, God and the Gay Christian by the founder of the Ref, uh, Reformation Projects, a great one. I cover uh, the scriptural texts in a letter to my congregation. David Gushy's book, Changing Our Mind, uh, deals with the texts. Um, so there's, there's many, many really good books on this, uh, on this topic. One of my little favorites is a translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. He's an Eastern Orthodox scholar, and he interpret he uh, his translation hews very closely to the original Greek, and he's got a um, in the back he's got an appendix, and he talks about some of these key Greek words that are translated in harmful to gay people uh, ways, and um, he he does a really great job uh, with this. So if you're looking for a New Testament. Uh, the David Bentley Hart translation of the New Testament is a great one. We also have a question from Grace. It says, uh, is there any understanding of the harm that Leviticus 18.20 were trying to protect against? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, um, the likelihood is that the, um, the priestly writer is aware of um, some uh, uh, form of sexual contact that, that is connected with pagan worship. I mentioned the issue of, um, you know, the prohibition against, uh, against uh, male shrine prostitutes in Deuteronomy. The fact that in the ancient world, it was the men who were the worshipers in the temple. So it's quite possible that what the writer has in mind is not what we think of as gay people ex expressing intimate love with each other, but is um, either pagan practices that I, are idolatrous or practices, and this was very common in the ancient world. It's hard for us to understand it in the modern world, 
but the main way that um, anal sex was practiced was as a form of dominance. Uh, this sometimes happens in, in prisons and in jails. So it was a way of one man showing dominance violently over another. Um, so I think there's a lot, and when we get into Romans 1 and when Kathy gets into 1 Corinthians 6, 9, she'll bring some of this out. But yes, I think, I think the writers of, of uh, Leviticus, the priestly writer, probably had something like what we would even think of today as quite egregious that, that needs to be prohibited. We have um, a question about this do no harm ethic. Um, it, is this a new teaching or is this something just not emphasized today? And I know you kind of brought out that it was an ancient teaching that has been in the threads all along, but if you wanted to kind of maybe, you know. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, I've been talking with David Gushy about this. He'll be speaking next month. And he agrees that this is like an undeveloped um, theology, this perspective. I think the reason for it is that it's, it's actually embedded in the um, most ancient part of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus in particular. And so it isn't something that is emphasized because, frankly, Christian scholars just tend to gloss over the Old Testament. It's it's um, like if you're if you're in a church that uses the lectionary readings where there's an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, the New Testament reading, chances are the pastor is going to pick the New Testament reading um, and not the Old Testament reading because it's more difficult. It's harder to understand. It's using categories like purity and sacrifice and food laws and things like this that we're so unfamiliar with. So I, I think it's like hidden away in a sense in the Old Testament, but when you have eyes to see it, it starts to, it starts to um, really emerge. There's Along with the do no harm ethic, um, David asks if, if you um, notice the prophets calls for mercy, humility, and justice, if that would be along those same lines. Absolutely, and, and Jesus is picking this up in a big way and has a huge concern about the oppression of the of the vulnerable by the powerful and and when he gets when he gets prophetically angry in the gospels this is always um what's going on with jesus so yes this is this is really this is really crucial we also have a question from grace it says um this may be sort of out of the wheelhouse but given this understanding of jewish scripture why do so many Orthodox Jews still con, uh, condone LGBTQ identities? I hope. Um, I think maybe. I, I think, think maybe she meant asking about condemning. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, I, I'm not an all an expert. I can't really say uh, much about Orthodox uh, Judaism. But I do know that conservative Judaism, so there's three primary branches. There's Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. And Conservative is more con conservative than Reform, for example. And uh, the conser uh, Conservative um, uh, Rabbinic un Union changed its perspective on LGBT and became affirming uh, several years ago. And so I think that's significant um, because they're they're dealing um they're dealing with these texts i think orthodox judaism in general like fundamentalism in in christianity 
is um, is you know really resisting any kind of modern trends often. Uh, so you know in in conservative forms of Christianity, there's a resistance to full equality for women, um, and that's just kind of part of the part of the uh, part of the tradition. And it was a long time before before any Christian institution saw the harm in slavery and spoke up against it, right? It, it really wasn't until like the 17th century this, that this was emerging. And so, yeah, this is something that as human beings, we're blind to harm done to others when it's not done to us. And when the harm done to others is helping us in some way, bolstering the economy or giving us some advantage. We have a question. Um, it's been um, thumbs up a couple of times, so that I think that this is a question from multiple people. But um, Kevin and Kim posted it originally. How can we respond to Christians who believe it's their duty to warn and rebuke LGBTQ people, and who believe that to not warn them is doing harm? Yeah, I think we just—it's it, the job of of allies um, more than um, people who have suffered under these teachings directly to engage um, engage with people who don't like think of it as engaging with Vanessa before Vanessa was the Vanessa we know there were people I'm sure in Vanessa's life who were willing to talk to her about this or engage with her about this I had people in my life that I was able to talk to and that was that was very helpful um, one of the things that we're trying to do in this class is to give you a sense of confidence that scripture itself is on your side and it's not a question of like well you know conservative christians who are anti-lgbt have the have the lock on scripture i mean this is our book too and so engaging it by demonstrating your getting into scripture and wrestling with scripture i think is is one way one way to do this that kind of ties into one of the other questions about is there going to be a discussion about the um, scripture passages that actually confirm LGBTQ people that, you know, are pro LGBTQ. Yeah, um, well, we're going to see like, I don't actually know what's going to be in this class until it happens. So uh, we'll see what David Gushy and Megan DeFranza and Kathy uh, Baldock do, but um, it's certainly a worthwhile topic. Um, we have a question. Um, Shauna asks, Leviticus prefaces this section with do not approach any near relation to have sex with them. As slaves were part of the households, could this be addressing slaves? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I have to I'd have to consult Jacob Milgram on that, but it's a, but it's a good question. And there's also a question from Karen. Um, what do you think of the argument some make that David and Jonathan's relationship was sexually intimate and not just friendship? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, um, the challenge is I think it's speculative. Um, it's certainly possible. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's aspects of it that certainly speak to a kind of um, deep affection and even we could say attraction 
but it's um it's just hard it's hard to demonstrate conclusively i think um so but i mean that's that's the way scripture is scripture is written in a way that it like everything isn't like just out there playing like some kind of manual that's explaining something it's uh there there's an artistry to it and so we have the freedom to engage it and say what is it well, what is written how do you read it you know how do you read jonathan and david's relationship um and there should be freedom in the church for that kind of engagement rather than this anxious fearful kind of controlling mentality of like you know wow if you if you say that jonathan and david were possibly lovers like well get out of the get you know get out get out of the bible study or everyone tenses up you know when we when we relax about these things we can i think uh do a lot better job with our reading of scripture and i think just one more thing that a number of people have asked about the recordings and when they're going to be available and how to access them and that kind of thing yeah so um i'm leaving the availability of the recordings up to each speaker so once they once they uh, do their presentation then we'll make it available with their with their permission so you have my permission so we're we're um um we'll we'll be putting this up and so just a week time by time um we'll let you know i expect that i, I expect they'll all be available but i don't want to presume on the material that is the you know that is kind of owned by the person who's who's giving it so uh and and robin charles is our uh is our web person and she's really good at, and i'm i'm guessing she'll have the have things up by wednesday week following our our sunday session and we'll we'll uh, give you an email each each time to let you know how to get it and give you the give you the direct link again uh, in my case you'll have the you'll have the written notes available as well as the audio recording on a podcast and the video um recording on what is it vimeo um i i don't know i think um oh people are asking is if it's okay to pass on the zoom address or do new people have to get it directly from you that's a great question um the thing is we wanted it to uh we wanted to keep this a safe environment especially for our lgbtq participants so the only thing i don't want is it to go to someone who's coming into the into the class and going to be challenging defending the traditional view all that kind of stuff that's not what this class is about so my preference is that you um have people email us email uh, diane at uh, a2blue.org um and uh and ask to be added to the uh class list we also put it in the um blue ocean mama bears um facebook group but that's a private group so it's a little bit safer in that context too and and the recordings i mean to to share that information with with people you know yeah. there's not the threat of of the the live right. feed and everything so that yeah. that's different i mean those are you know share away for that yeah. Yeah, they're they're on they'll be on our website and that's all available. There's been a lot of great resources being shared in the chat as well. And so, you know, that's great. It's great to have all of these um, people dedicated to this and who have been 
really working hard at, at finding resources that help them through this um, to be better loving um, neighbors and allies and family and friends. So yeah. um, I think we, we don't have any more um, questions per se. Just one thing I wanted to add is that I would encourage you, we don't, we're not charging for the class um, and we're happy to do it. And Blue Ocean is uh, covering the honorarium for, the, for our guest speakers and whatnot. But I think it'd be great if, to buy the books of the, of the speakers. You know, David, David Gushy writing uh, Changing Our Minds. Um, Megan DeFranza, um, book on intersex. Uh, her name is uh, M-E-G-A-N, but it's pronounced Megan DeFranza. Um, Kathy Baldock has, has a book. Um, and, you know, some of the scholars, especially when they did their work within evangelicalism, they lost a lot of, um, they, they suffered losses. I mean, Megan DeFranza um, lost tenure track at her evangelical college when she came out as affirming. So uh, buy Megan DeFranza's book for sure um, as a way to support this, uh, this scholarship. Well, oh, praise us for finishing by in an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, dang, I'm impressed. So uh, shall we have, um, shall Closing we have song? Susan close this with a song? Sure thing. I just put the um, lyrics in the chat. Um, it's by the Porter's Gate and Audrey Assad. It's called Nothing to Fear.
That was a beautiful song. Thank you. So I just wanted to send everyone off. Thank you so much for joining us. And just as you go, listen to your heart and, and follow your heart and, and let it guide you. So we're praying for you and thank you so much for joining.